Hello and welcome back to Hiff Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy Hiff Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Raywood's Harrogate Literature Festival, a celebration of great writing and leading thinkers sponsored by Raywood's Solicitors. Sit back, relax and enjoy an inspiring and entertaining discussion with feminist icon and lifelong smasher of glass ceilings, Lady Brenda Hale. I'm very, very proud of being a Yorkshire woman. I'm very proud of having grown up near and gone to school in the original Richmond. (laughs) The Richmond after which, directly or indirectly, all the other Richmonds in the world, and there are more than a hundred of them, are named. um, Because it's a beautiful place. It's a wonderful historic place. Uh, But I was always conscious of being born in Yorkshire and it being a very important part of my identity. Whether that led to plain speaking, as I say, you all have to judge. But as you know, there's a lot, um, particularly in the law historically, and maybe Mm. less uh, strong now, there's been a very strong class um, system, uh, particularly Mm. mainly men, mainly men who spoke in a certain way. Um, Did that, that made you harder to place, presumably, did first of all being a woman, but also having... I think more being a a woman. Um, I doubt if I've got a Yorkshire accent anymore, except when I'm in Yorkshire. Um, You've got something. It's not classically seen. There's something there. Yeah, I'm sure that will be true. Yes. Uh, No, it was mainly being a woman, Mm. because when I went to university, only 2.5% of girls aged 18 went to university. Just think on that. And only 4.5% of practising solicitors were women. I didn't know those figures. It's a good thing not to know these figures, because (laughs) it wouldn't have put me off or anything like that. But it just indicates that being a woman is really quite unusual. And I think that was much more than being a Yorkshire woman, um, because there had been Northerners who'd been judges and top judges and so on. I, I think that was not so important. And um, I warn you, some of my questions will appear to be going towards politics, but then will veer away at the last um, <laughs> uh, uh, <coughs> at the last moment. So, for example, there's a lot of talk about the consequences of Boris Johnson, and you, you in a way, are one of those because he, um, you, you were well known, you were very successful, you were respected, but in attempting, I might say, as a journalist, to make you infamous. He made you famous. I wonder if we w- would we have that, this book and this event and this crowd without Boris Johnson's attempt to prorogue Parliament? I suspect not. No. Um, I'm, I'm not vainglorious enough to think that simply being the first woman in the top court in the United Kingdom and being its first woman president would be enough to provoke the level of interest. I would probably have written memoirs, but I would probably have gone to a legal publisher as most of my colleagues do if they write a memoir, I wouldn't have been courted by uh, general publishers who are anxious to get the story out to a much wider audience. So, yes, I think I've got a lot to thank Boris for. (laughs) (laughs) Including, uh, some of you will remember that in the confidence debate which he provoked uh, shortly before his departure, one of the first things that he said was, with grim determination, we saw off Brenda Hale and Mm. got Brexit done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was wrong on so many counts, wasn't he? Well, leave out we saw off Brenda Hale. That was the bit that was wrong. But um, 
otherwise. But when something like that happened, were you watching or listening at the time? No, it was drawn to my attention. You know, I have people who watch the media on my behalf. <laughs> <laughs> but that must have been quite a moment that he chose at that uh, time of extremist to yes. invoke you. Well, it was astonishing, really. Mm. I mean, for a start, all I was was the mouthpiece for an 11-strong Supreme Court, which was unanimously against him. Mm. Secondly, we weren't trying to stop Brexit. That wasn't what the case was about. The case was about trying to shut down Parliament for five weeks out of the eight before we were automatically going to leave the EU unless something was done. Now, it's totally unprecedented, completely outside the range of the use of the power to suspend Parliament. So it's scarcely surprising that we said that it couldn't be done. It wasn't within his powers. Um, but... We weren't trying to stop Brexit, very far from it. <laughs> now, uh, this is, uh, we, you, you can respond to this, um, and it will be in the negative, but um, no, in a, good, in, in, in a good way, which is that um, there is a view out there, it may be out there in this hall, and we'll take questions later, that um, the whole thing was a Remainer stitch-up. And I mean, let's be, let's be clear, I mean, government ministers and even prime ministers virtually said as much, didn't they? They did. Yeah. They did, and, and they were wrong about that. I mean, obviously, the two important cases, uh, the one uh, about triggering the EU leaving process, the Article 50 case, and the prorogation case, were brought by people who were Remainers. Um, but that wasn't anything that we were responsible for. Particularly in the prorogation case, we had absolutely no choice. We had to take the case, because there was the English High Court saying, no, no, it's too political, we can't have anything to do with this. And there was the top judge in Scotland, in the Scottish Court of Appeal saying, oh no, of course it's justiciable because this is a constitutional issue about the extent of the powers of the government and the Prime Minister in particular. And yes, we can look at it. And yes, we can draw our own conclusions from the evidence that we've got uh, about, they drew conclusions about the motives, which we didn't. Um, but they held that it was unlawful uh, and of no effect. So one of them said Parliament has been provoked prorogued, and the other said Parliament hasn't been prorogued. We didn't have a choice, did we? We had to take the case. Uh, and so that was what we were discussing. We were not. I have absolutely no idea what the developed views of each of the justices who heard that case, and there were 11 of us, were pro or anti-Brexit. I, I really don't know what their views were because that wasn't what we were talking about at all. <laughs> we were talking about the extent of the royal prerogative, you know, and boring things like that, um, and old cases going back to the 17th century. But one of the, um, one of the things that fascinates me, because we've only, it seems much longer to me, and in a good way, but we've only had a Supreme Court for 13 years Since now. 2009. Yeah, in this yes. country. Um, the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, mm in lots of ways is an interesting comparison mm. or contrast, I think. And this is maybe what confused some people in newspaper, some newspapers about what mm. went on. Because in America, as we know, they are, they're branded to the president who appointed them. Yes. Um, depending on the run of presidents you get, it will affect, and the run of deaths, which is a different issue or resignations, it will affect the political makeup of the court. Um, but you're, it's not like that at all here. 
No, not at all. Well, the, the biggest difference, of course, is that in the United Kingdom, we have a constitution, but we don't have a written constitution. Mm. And the feature of written constitutions, which are common throughout the developed world, you know, we are very unusual in not having one, is that the top parliament cannot do what it wants. It is constrained by the constitution, and therefore there has to be a body, and it is the Supreme Court or a constitutional court, depending where you are, uh, which can decide whether what they've done is within the bounds of their powers under the constitution. We don't have any of that. Our principal constitutional principle, that's two different spellings of principle, yeah. <laughs> um, is that parliament is supreme, which means that the UK parliament can make or unmake any law. And so the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom does not have the power to strike down an act or a provision in an act of the UK Parliament. So that's a huge difference between us. Um, but the other big difference is that in the United States, the appointments process is, I was going to say nakedly, but that's, that sounds pejorative. It is um, obviously and by design political because appointments are recommended by the president of the day, they have to be confirmed by the Senate, but they almost always are. There are only a handful of cases which it hasn't been. And so, and so everybody knows the politics of the people who are appointed. And this is true of the Supreme Court, but it's true of all the federal um, judges as well. Whereas in this country, even though until the Constitutional Reform Act came into force, uh, the 2005 Act came into force, the appointments were ostensibly in the hands of the Lord Chancellor. In practice, they were not done on political lines. Yeah. Um, we tend to uh, take this back to just after the Second World War, when there was, of course, a landslide Labour victory. But the idea that the Labour Party could then have found enough Labour-supporting senior <laughs> uh, people to appoint to the top court in the country, you know, was not... Um, uh, tenable, really, and it has been thought since then that uh, appointments to the judiciary, the higher judiciary, have not been made on party political grounds at all. Uh, I mean, I've had six judicial appointments, and the first two were by Conservative, um, well, recommended by Conservative Lord Chancellors, the second two were recommended by Labour Lord Chancellors, and the Last two were by our spanking new merit-based independent system, which mm. takes politics almost entirely out of it. So those are the two big differences between mm. us and the United States. We like it better here. <coughs> but if we, um, if we try to, con and people keep trying to say we should have a written constitution, we should have a new system mm -hmm. of this, um, it's always been peculiar that the Lord Chancellor is a member of the government, though. Isn't it? I mean, that has, you write about this in the book, but I mean, yeah. that's always been a complication. Well, it, it was, um, I mean, it became increasingly untenable that the Lord Chancellor was head of the judiciary, entitled to sit as a judge, although the late Charlie Faulkner never did, uh, and Derry Irvin hardly ever did. James Mackay did a bit, and uh, Lord Hailsham did a bit, um, but mostly they didn't. But they were nevertheless entitled to sit in the top court in the land. They were entitled to preside. They were entitled to choose the panels that sat, which is, of course, an important point about mm. <laughs> courts that sit in panels. Um, but they, they 
mainly stepped back from that in, in recent years. But they were also a senior member of the government mm. and they were Speaker of the House of Lords. So they had to spend <laughs> an awful lot of time sitting on the wool stick, twiddling their thumbs. Because actually, the Speaker of the House of Lords does very little. Except walking backwards um, away from the monarch. Uh, yes, but I think even then, Derry Irvin was allowed to... Uh, he was allowed to turn around. He was I just, one of the around. first <laughs> earliest things I saw as a journalist was the very elderly Lord Hailsham teetering backwards. And yeah. Yeah. We were yeah. terrified for him. Yes, uh, and with a, <laughs> with a gown that he could easily have tripped yeah. over as well. No, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I have every sympathy, given the difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> would, you, um, would a written constitution be better, do you think? Are you allowed to express an opinion? Oh, I can definitely mm -hmm. express an opinion. Uh, and I can actually give you a 60-minute lecture on the subject. <laughs> like um, however, I don't propose to mm. do that. Um, because my first reaction to it is it's not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is that, of course, Parliament would have to vote for it. Mm. So Parliament would have to give up its current power to make or unmake any law irrespective of its compatibility with the Constitution. So Turkey's voting for Christmas kind of comes to mind. Mm. Uh, so it is unlikely to happen. Um, but of course, the other, even, even supposing that it might happen, and of course we could get to a state, there is now such a groundswell of opinion uh, amongst people who are very respected that enough is enough. We really ought to have... Um, something which sets down the rules, or some of the rules. But the problem still is that there would then have to be a body which decided whether the political institutions had kept to the rules. So that would increase the power of the Supreme Court, or a Supreme Court, or a new body that would be some sort of court. Uh, and a lot of people don't want that, although it works perfectly well in all, almost everywhere else apart from the United States. It works perfectly mm. well. You know, if we were to look to Canada as a yeah. model, it works very well in Canada and in most of the rest of the world. But nevertheless, most people here probably wouldn't like that, and I don't think the judges would like it either. We were very comfortable with you know, the limits on, on what we could do. We can keep the government in order, but we can't keep Parliament in order. That's, that's basically <laughs> it. Mm. Um, continuing talking about the US Supreme Court, they, as you know, have, I mean, awesome powers um, to reverse yes. fertility rights, at least mm. at the federal level, um, for women to decide the results of an election in, in mm. one case. It's quite extraordinary if you read about the history of the mm. US Supreme Court. Um, you, the Supreme Court of which you remember, will never get anywhere near that level of power, will it? No, not unless, mm. uh, not unless it's given more power. Yeah. Or, I suppose, uh, there could be things that a government did, oh, like the prorogation, yeah. which was unlawful, um, uh, which, which gives a degree of power. But as I say, we don't have power over Parliament, so mm. if Parliament decides something... And it, I mean, there are election courts... Mm. Um, which have to decide disputes, which are usually about whether people have behaved unlawfully in the run-up to the election and so on. Well, we do have that, mm. uh, which is as it should be. I mean, mm. elections should be properly and lawfully conducted. Mm. Uh, so there should be somebody who can decide that. So it's not as unprecedented as all that. I mean, the particular mm. case you're talking about mm. was mm. pretty strange. But, yeah. um, uh, but to have a, an independent body that decides whether an election has been conducted... Uh, along the terms of which the law requires, that's 
that's standard. And if you stand outside the American Supreme Court and the justices are leaving, presidential-style motorcades and security <laughs> they have heading off into the, uh, towards their homes. Um, and they do, I mean, they live really in a bubble, a security bubble and um, protected. You've, I assume you've never had that. No, not at all. Um, the only judges in the United Kingdom who have routinely had intense security have from time to time been the judges in Northern Ireland. Uh, who obviously, at the height of the Troubles, had really intense security, you know, policemen camping in the garden and things like that. It was really horrible for them. That was greatly relaxed after the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, they've had to go back to a bit of it. But, no, in the Supreme Court, no, we, we walk to and fro, get public transport, go on the tube, go on buses. Um, no security. People often ask me when I come and do events like this, well, have you any security arrangements? Which I'll say, oh, 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 I trust you all. Um, you know, decent, well-behaved people from Yorkshire, of course. Um, but, uh, but no, uh, even when the Supreme Court went to Belfast to sit, because we did that, we went to Scotland to demonstrate that we were the Supreme Court for Scotland as well as uh, we went to... Belfast to demonstrate that we were the Supreme Court for Northern Ireland, and we went to Cardiff to demonstrate that we were the Supreme Court for Wales. Um, but when we went to Belfast, we had no, mm. no security at all. And it's, you write in the book about the day when you, um, which led to so, so much of this, when you read the judgment in the prorogation mm. case, and you said they were worried about security on that day, because this is a divided country, increasingly so, and two, yes. I mean, two, two MPs, we have to keep remembering, have been murdered recently. Recently, yes. Um, well, there was a very heightened uh, atmosphere in both of the Brexit cases, um, and a lot of people wanted to be in the court building. We had a ticketing system, you know, to, uh, not to vet people, but just to make sure that we, we knew who many how many people were going to be there. And there was just a slight feeling that whatever way the result went, you know, somebody might sort of get up and shout or whatever. So our Supreme Court security people were more visible than they normally are. And actually, our, um, our registrar decided to put my husband in the gallery rather than, because he's a very recognisable person, um, rather than have him in the body of the <laughs> courtroom. But of course, everybody was good as gold, as you would expect. They, they listened uh, riveted. The only noise was the gasp when I said that this was the unanimous decision mm. of us all, because people weren't expecting that. Uh, but otherwise, everybody was good as gold. And were you nervous that day? No more nervous than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you made a decision that day. I, I mean, I have a general policy not to ask... Um, women I interview about clothes or fashion decisions, but um, I, I have got permission to do it on this occasion because um, it has become part of your brand and indeed is why this is called Spider-Woman. Um, take it through. You, you say in the book that you had, you'd been wearing these... Um, brooches. Uh, brooches. Brooches, they're yeah. called, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. I, I was thinking of another word for it, ornaments. Um, no, yeah. um, uh, Americans call them pins. Ah, right, yeah. 
Yes, yes, carry on. Um, I interrupted you, no, sorry. No, not no, not at all. So you write about this in the book, uh, which I do, I recommend heartily, by the way. There's great stuff. Um, I had no idea that all other Richmonds are named after this Richmond yeah. until I read your book, yeah. yeah. Um, but on brooches, um, you'd been wearing them for a while, um, and you always, you said you always made the decision carefully, but take us through how the brooches came about. Well, the brooches came about when I first became a high court judge sitting in the family division of the high court, because most of our, the great majority of our hearings were in private, so we didn't wear robes, but we were expected to wear sober suits, and I hate suits, um, and... Uh, now, that's really interesting. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. that, it is, it's basically misogynistic, isn't it? It's, um, what, to make us wear suits? Yeah, why do you have to wear... Because it's, it's trying to turn you into... I suppose so. Men. We were... During the 90s, we began to wear dresses, um, which I'm much more comfortable in a dress than a suit. But yes, you're right. Oh, and it was worse than that. Um, they, they made the women wear... If there were robes, they made the women wear wigs, which, of course, are men's wigs. Um, but they also wouldn't let us wear trousers. Again, until the 90s. <laughs> so not being allowed to wear trousers, you know, when they are making mm. us wear suits, you know, it was a bit... Anyway, however, that's by mm. the way. Mm. Um, so my husband started giving me brooches just to, you know, lighten these dark, horrible suits that I was wearing. And the first one actually was an antique silver spider. Um, but then, of course, you know, the whole brooch idea caught on and I... Uh, amassed a huge collection of not expensive brooches, most of which were creatures of one sort or another. So I had a few spiders, a few dragonflies, a few bugs, a, few, a lot of frogs, because I am known to like frogs, uh, and a few others as well. So I had this collection of brooches, um, and they tended, because they were creatures, of course, they'd got minds of their own, they would migrate to a particular garment and live there because that's where they felt comfortable. <laughs> I'm sure some of the women in the room will understand this. You know, you find something that suits the particular garment, and it stays there, doesn't it? Yeah, so it comes off when it's washed or cleaned or whatever, but it goes back on. Um, and so I thought very carefully about what dress I would wear, and I was going to wear that dress that's on the front of the book, uh, because it's a nice demure uh, black wool crepe dress. seemed the right thing. And that dress always has a spider on it, and it had the spider that's on there, which is a, a very nice black and sparkly spider. But when I got the dress out of the wardrobe, the spider wasn't on it. It had obviously dropped off. This is the problem with brooches. Like earrings, they don't always stay where they're supposed to stay, so they do get lost. And I looked for it, I scrabbled around at the bottom of the wardrobe, no, and I've still not found it. I thought, I'd better find another brooch <laughs> to go on this dress. So I went to my drawer and I picked out the first sort of spider brooch that I saw, which was the one that I was wearing, which was not that one, on the mm. day in question. Um, and it was a big, sparkly spider with red eyes. Uh, and it was very prominent because of the camera angle at which they um, transmitted it all, which was unfortunate. <laughs> very unfortunate, yes. Uh, uh, my husband uh, told me that it cost £12 from cards galore. <laughs> it looks much more expensive than yeah, that, yeah. so that's rather good. Um, but I must admit that had the dear friend of mine who the day after sent me the YouTube video of The Who singing a song called Boris the Spider. Mm. 
<laughs> How many of you knew that The Who had a song called Boris the Spider? Well, oh, uh, two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know that, I'm afraid. You know, um, judges are, lead sheltered lives. And um, <laughs> had I known that, I would not have worn a spider. Because Boris the Spider in that YouTube video comes to a very sticky end. <laughs> so, which was not the object of the exercise at all. But had you chosen one of the others, this book could be called Frog Woman or something. It some, could be called, yeah. well, it would be called something else. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, we, we would have to be creative, wouldn't we? Yes. But apart from Boris the Spider, the other thing, um, particularly uh, the Daily Mail um, and other newspapers, they hit on this idea um, because of the play and film because of the mm. Spider Woman. Mm. Um, it was pejorative, wasn't it? It was suggesting mm. that you, mm. that the, the kiss of the Spider Woman had seen off. Brexit. But you did what you... We didn't see off Brexit. I know, I'm telling you... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm telling you what they were, yeah, as know, you know. I know, You, you yes. know that... It is a newspaper that I don't read. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know they were... Um, they were arguing that, but you decided you decided to embrace it and own well, it. Well, I think as they so. Say Why that. not? Yeah, no, I think it's... Um, I mean, it wasn't the original plan, but when the publisher... And, and I were sort of discussing the book as it was going through the editorial process. We'd called it Spider Woman, you know, um, in our email titles. Mm. And of course it stuck and it seemed inevitable to be the title eventually. Oh, why not? Mm. Mm. And you'd written, um, because it's part of what judges do, is writing. Uh, Lots and it's of writing. a really very yes. significant part of it. Um, and it was in North Yorkshire that he wrote the, um, the famous judgment. UK. Absolutely, yeah. yes, yes. We, uh, I mean, obviously, we had to decide the case very, very quickly, which the Supreme Court doesn't normally do, um, because there would be no point in deciding the case. If we were going to decide against the Prime Minister, there would be no point in doing so if the five weeks had already gone by. So we actually had to salvage as much of the parliamentary timetable as one possibly could. So we heard the case from Tuesday to Thursday in one week, and we gave judgment on the Tuesday the following week. And um, so we decided what the result was going to be and what the reasoning was going to be, and then the deputy president and I went away for the weekend to write it. And we divided it up, who was going to do the first draft of which sections of, of it. And so we exchanged drafts over the weekend. I was up in Yorkshire. He was down in Greenwich or somewhere like that. Um, and we busily exchanged these drafts. And we got one that we were happy with by the Sunday morning. We then sent it round to all the others. And they all um, contributed their comments on it and improvements to it. One of them was on holiday in Sardinia. <laughs> so he sent us a lovely photo of him with a marvellous blue sea behind him at the desk in his <laughs> hotel room or apartment, you know, working on the judgment. Um, but everybody contributed. And then we sent it to the court to be processed in the normal way on the Monday. I travelled down. And so, yes, I wrote it in Yorkshire. And I'm interested in, as a form of writing, because it's, it's driven by the footnotes, as it were, a lot of it, isn't it? That, <clears throat> yes. I mean, you can get great, there have been great, great legal stylists in mm. America and Britain, but everything has to be supported by... Yes, we're not, making, we're not making it up. No, no, I mean... You're <laughs> uh, <not. clears throat> no, what we're trying to do is discern what the applicable legal principles are uh, about the extent of the court's control over the exercise of the 
prerogative, mm. as it's called, that is the remaining powers of the government which derive from the powers of the monarch, which have not been interfered with by uh, statute, by legislation. So working out what the principles were about that and then applying them to the particular set of facts that we had. The particular set of facts that we had was quite extraordinary because we had this extraordinary use of the power. We had evidence that it was completely unnecessary to prorogue Parliament for five weeks when the sort of maximum that you need to prepare for a Queen's speech is about four days. Um, and we had a lot of legal precedent that... Uh, the courts could control the extent of the royal prerogative. A little bit more difficult to control the exercise within the extent, if you get the difference. Mm. You know, there's an envelope within which there is power, and controlling what goes on within the envelope is much more difficult than controlling whether or not it's inside or outside the envelope. And we were deciding it was outside the envelope. And we did say, well, what if we'd been given a good reason? But we weren't given a good reason. We weren't given any reason at all. <laughs> um, I felt very sorry for the head of the government legal service, uh, Sir Jonathan Jones, who resigned fairly shortly thereafter over another matter where the government was proposing to act unlawfully. And he sat the whole way through the hearing. And it's his job when the actions of the government are challenged for their legality, it's his job to write to all the government departments concerned to say, uh, bring out your dead, so to speak. Um, no, t tell me, give me all the information that you've got which is relevant to this case because the government has a duty to be candid with the court and disclose all the relevant information that it's had. And you could just imagine poor Jonathan Jones writing to number 10 saying, tell me everything that you've got about the decision to do this. And basically, we've got one memo. Wow. One memo. And this memo said, if you read the book, it tells you all about yeah. what this memo yeah. said. But basically, it said, well, we've got to work from the Queen's speech because the Queen's speech has been in her diary forever on October the 14th. Um, uh, and so, uh, sort of working back from that, well, there's no real reason why we shouldn't prorogue Parliament five weeks earlier. <laughs> That's basically all it said. And at no discussion of the difference between going into recess, where Parliament can still operate, uh, and proroguing, no discussion of why they needed five weeks rather than four days, none of that. And if you remember, uh, Boris then scribbled on that, well, the only reason that we sit in September anyway is uh, because of that uh, girly SWAT Cameron yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who wanted to sh show to the public that, that we were earning our crust. So I don't see why we shouldn't do it. So that's and, um, all we had about the reasoning. In the book, without expressing a view on Dave Cameron, of course, you, um, you come out as a girly SWAT yourself. Oh, you bet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, let's hear it for the girly swat. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to um, talk more about that um, in, <laughs> in a moment. Something um, struck me very recently. There was a radio interview during one of the many cases of a child mm. who, um, yeah. uh, whether the uh, treatment can be with withdrawn. I mean, there have been mm. several recently. Mm. And there's an interview with um, one of your former colleagues who had run the family court. I can't remember his name. But... It was quite extraordinary to me, I'd never thought about law in this way before, because the interviewer in a very sort of Twitter-age way was saying, but how do you sleep at night? Um, don't you think all the time about those mm. poor parents? Mm. And he just said, no. Um, mm. 
And they said, you know, but don't you, you must feel really sorry for those parents. And he said, no, my job was to apply the law mm. on behalf of the child, which is what mm. the court was doing. And I'm fascinated by the purity of that, but it, it, it must be very hard to achieve to remove emotion from it. It is. It's a bit like being a doctor. Mm. It, it's at its most acute when you're a trial judge, hearing the evidence, hearing the arguments, and making the first decision. You know, appellate judges just have to second guess what the poor bloody foot soldiers have done, you know. Mm. Um, and somebody expressed it as coming down from the hills and shooting the wounded. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> you know, after the battle has, has, yeah. has taken yeah. place. Yeah. Uh, and it is a bit like that sometimes. But, it is a, but when you're a trial judge, yes, you are very conscious, especially in the family division, mm. because you're deciding people's lives in the family division. Mm. You're not deciding what happened in the past. You're not awarding compensation or sending people to prison because of what happened in the past. You're trying to manage the future of these people, particularly the children, but also the grown-ups. Um, and so it is quite stressful. Um, but you have, of course, techniques for handling that. Mostly, there is applicable law. There is evidence. And you have to ask yourself, well, what, what's the applicable law and what evidence have I got that's relevant to each of the questions I have to ask myself? Mm. And so there's a great discipline. You know, and this is where writing a judgment comes in. Mm. You, know, you have to be able to explain yourself. Um, you have to be able to write it in a way that is going to explain your decision. Um, obviously, it ought to explain it to the parties, but I think that's very hard. You know? mm they'll need somebody else to explain it to them. Um, but certainly to their legal representatives, you have to try and explain it to the legal community generally, and of course to the Court of Appeal, which is going to put you right if you've got it wrong. So there are all sorts of audiences that you're writing for, but you're basically trying to explain it in a logical way. And that is a good way of handling the emotion. Mm. And I'm sure it's very similar to a doctor who mm. has to both empathise and stand back and make the right sort of give the right sort of advice to the patient. Because in that case, I mean, the, the comparison, if mm. a doctor, if a parent's saying there's this million pound drug in Prague, and mm. if our child could get that, they might live, they have to put aside emotion and look at mm. what the realistic cost um, benefit of that drug is. I mean, it's that kind of thing. Well, you basically, the, the principle is um, the best interests of the child. Oh. Um, not the wishes of the parents. Mm. Obviously, the wishes of the parents are relevant, often, in most cases which aren't death cases, mm. because basically these are death cases. Mm. You know, these are dead babies mm. who are being kept alive mm. um, artificially uh, in the hope that there might be something that would cure the underlying uh, condition. Um, and that, realistically, there isn't anything that would, uh, would do that. And so the judge has to hear all the evidence about that and, and make, a, make a decision as to what's realistic. Um, parents can't compel the NHS to go further than the NHS thinks is reasonable. Mm. Um, it becomes more complicated if there are other people prepared to pay. Yeah. And all of those cases, yeah. uh, there were other people who were prepared to pay to take the child somewhere else. Um, uh, so, a very, very hard decision mm. for the judges concerned. But the judges applied the right principles, mm. heard the evidence, made their decision on the basis of the evidence, not for us to interfere with that. But in those cases, the court is representing the 
child, in effect. Well, the court is, as I say, the principle yeah. is, yeah. Um, it's quite hard to talk about best interests when mm. basically there aren't any mm. best interests because mm. the child is dead. Mm. <laughs> you know, so it's quite mm. hard to, um, to, to talk about best interests. But you can ask yourself, is it really uh, in the best interest of this child to go to all the lengths, often not knowing? Uh, and in some of these cases, you, they didn't really know whether the child suffered pain. Mm. I mean, I can remember when we had the hearing about the, the very first one, mm. where we had um, a hearing about whether we should give permission to appeal. Um, uh, and I, I remember asking, well, is it known whether this child suffers pain? And they didn't know. Um, and when what you're doing is inevitably going to cause pain, you know mm. that. Um, the fact that you know what you're doing would cause pain if the child could suffer pain, but you don't know whether the child suffers pain. I mean, that's a pretty powerful mm. factor, isn't mm. it? Mm. Yeah. Obviously, it's worth pain if it's going to produce results. Mm. Mm. But if there's no evidence yeah. at all, it's going to produce results. Sorry, I can go on about this for quite no, no, a long no, time. No, 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 I, I was, but, I mean, I think people are fascinated by those yeah, cases because they yeah. come up so... Well, I mean, they don't, they come, don't up, come up frequently. No, no, they're but very, they get, very rare. But they get covered at an yeah. astonishing level because They do, of the, and yeah. that's partly because desperate parents yeah. go in for crowdfunding yeah. and... Um, American charities. Enhancing yeah, the, yeah. Um, yeah. The, the sort of media attention. Yeah. And who can blame them? Yeah. I would do the same myself if yeah. I were in their situation. Um, but, of course, the, the courts do have to... Mm. Stand back from that. And, uh, of course, from time to time, people say, well, isn't there a better way of solving these disputes? And then they say, well, we better have a committee. Mm. Well, that's a court, you know. Yeah. Because the <coughs> committee would have to hear the evidence. It would have to hear both sides. It would have to behave in exactly the same way that a court does. It might, not, it might have a less uh, formal adversarial atmosphere, but then you can run a court in a... In a mm. um, in a less formal adversarial way, if people will let you, but they won't always. No. Two more Supreme Court questions, then we'll talk a little bit more about um, your earlier uh, life. I say the Supreme Court hasn't been there a very long time. If it hadn't been there when Parliament was prorogued, what would have happened? Well, that's a very interesting question, <laughs> because before the Supreme Court of the uh, United Kingdom was set up, the top court for the United Kingdom, because you have to have a top court for the United Kingdom, because we have three separate justice systems in the United Kingdom, the top court was a committee of the House of Lords. <laughs> <laughs> now, my recollection is we certainly did sit while the rest of Parliament was in recess, but I can't remember whether we sat when Parliament was prorogued. So now, that's is, the best case I have heard. I've only just thought of it now. Yeah. The best case I have heard for having a Supreme Court rather than a Committee of Parliament. <laughs> because that, obviously you've got to have a Supreme Court to decide whether that was a lawful thing to do. That's so fascinating. So in, yeah. it, it's, it's possible in the other that because Parliament was pro-rogue, there was no one to hear the objection from Gina Miller and... Well, I suppose, uh, um, John beca Major. because the whole question was, was mm, Parliament mm, pro-rogue, mm. we could have sat what we lawyers would call de bene esse, in other words, provisionally, <laughs> so that it's all valid if Parliament hasn't been prorogued, <laughs> and if Parliament has been prorogued, well, of course, it doesn't matter. Mm. So that's probably what we would have done. 
Last question on the Supreme Court. Um, in America, some of them, you met some of them, became yeah. characters because of the... Yeah. Um, and Antonin Sc uh, Scalia did, didn't he? I mean, he became essentially a, well, a comic figure, but <clears throat> a humorous figure um, in a sort of slightly menacing way. Um, was, um, <laughs> what, was, that, was that a risk once you uh, started being uh, streamed, televised, um, and getting a case as big as that? Well, I think the getting a case as big as that, but that's, yeah, that's a one... Mm well, maybe two-shot wonder, and, and uh, things obviously calm down pretty quickly after that, and there won't be anything quite as big as that. I, I mean, I don't think the recent case about the, whether the Scottish Parliament can legislate for a second Scottish referendum, which they heard last week, I expect a lot of people did watch it, um, but I don't think it will have generated quite the same heat that, that those two cases did. So uh, we don't want to be celebrities, no, we don't set out to be celebrities, but we do set out to make what we do transparent to anybody who is interested. So that's why we live stream our hearings, so that any of you can go on the Supreme Court website and um, look, at, look at the argument in a case. You'll get a, a summary of what the case is all about, and then you'll get the legal argument, which is tedious beyond belief, usually. Um, unless you're involved in the case. We don't find it tedious, we find it fascinating. But it's really difficult, on the whole, to listen to, unless you know a lot about the case and you've got the papers. And we, we've been trying to look for ways of putting the papers on the website as well, but that is much trickier because of data protection um, legislation and so on. But, uh, but anybody can do that, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And anybody can pop into the Supreme Court. You don't have to have an appointment. You can just go in, um, go through, you'll get a self-guided tour, you'll be told what's, if there's a hearing going on, or hearings, there are often two in the building, that you'll get a summary of the cases. You can pop your head round the door of the court and see what's going on. I do recommend it. It's a lovely building. It's a beautiful building. Um, and you can see the top court in the country in operation. We're, we're going to open up to the audience in a moment, but do, do you get recognised in public? Yes. Not invariably, but mm. um, I do from time to time. It tends to be law students and lawyers. <laughs> right. Um, or the people who actually stop me and say, are you, mm. um, tend to be law students or lawyers, mm. yes. There may be other people who recognise me but don't mm. stop me, but yes. Mm. Mm. And just before we open up to the audience, <laughs> the book, um, it won't surprise people as we know about imposter syndrome, but it's, um, it has a very uh, unusual beginning, I think, for a memoir, in that you take four moments from your life, from September 1955 at Richmond High School for Girls in North Yorkshire, um, 1963 we get, 1984, and then 13th of January 2020, when I um, defeated my imposter syndrome. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, you can't comment on this, but someone said about Liz Trust she was the only woman in power who didn't suffer from imposter syndrome. But she, um, <laughs> she, had, the, she had the opposite one. But um, <laughs> she thought she was tremendously good at all. But you can't comment on that. Um, but it is... Um, and very, very few men have imposter syndrome in public life. I think we know that. Um, so... I don't know that. 
Well, I don't know if we can can discuss it. I know that lots of women have imposter syndrome. When they reach a position which very few women are in, or in my Mm. case, on a few occasions, no woman had ever Mm. been in before. Uh, Yes, you do ask yourself, why am I here? Am I up to it? Um, Mm. Am I an an imposter? We didn't use the word imposter syndrome, but I remember feeling it on more than the three occasions that Mm. I mentioned at the beginning of the book. Um, But I've actually always taken the view that, well, somebody thinks I ought to be here, so it's my job to try and prove them right. And if I can't prove them right, it's their fault, not mine. (laughs) (laughs) And a number of... um, Another question women who become the first to do something, and they have to address this. I remember interviewing Madeleine Albright, the first Mm. um, uh, female Secretary of State in America, and she said that she was astonished by how much fuss everyone made Mm. Mm. about it. And she was um, equivocal about it because she Mm. wanted to be celebrate for being Secretary of State, not for being the first woman. Hillary Clinton has said similar Mm. things um, about when she, you know, Mm. attempted to become, and there's still been no um, woman president. so that's, um, and you, you use the F word, feminist, quite, um, it's oh, yes. a title yeah, of a yeah. chapter. No, some people don't, uh, particularly, you know, of your generation don't, but we have a feminist Frank and Fearless is one of the um, uh, chapters. Mm. But you, you, do, you would call yourself a feminist. Absolutely. Mm. Well, as far as I'm concerned, a feminist is somebody who believes that uh, men and women are equal in dignity and rights, which is what it says in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights but also that for a variety of reasons we lead different lives, often because of other people's reaction to us, and there are other reasons as well. And the experience of leading women's lives is just as important to feed into the experience of making and applying the law as is the experience of leading men's lives. As simple as that. So it's not about hating men, it's not about wanting to downgrade men, it's not about diminishing the importance of men's experience in things. It's simply saying, we've got it too. And so (laughs) please give us a share of the thinking about it. Um, So that's Mm. why I've never been bothered about calling myself a feminist. Mm. We've got some microphones going round. Yes, there's one there. Um, Please raise a hand. Who wants to start us off here? Oh, just behind you. So it's like pantomime season. Behind you. (laughs) There you are. Thank you. Uh, Lady Hale, thank you for your fascinating insight and uh, for so elegantly tiptoeing around the politics of it. I just wondered when you were making that uh, decision on proroguing Parliament, how much you were aware that your decision would be seen as hugely political, that you would have uh, organisations like your least favourite newspaper. Um, I didn't say it was arms. my least favourite newspaper. Oh, I just said I didn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me and thank you for the correction. Um, but whether you, how conscious you were and how much you discussed when you were coming to your decision that it would be seen as a political decision and, and whether mm. um, you think that having made that decision now, you've sent a message collectively to the political classes that, well, we do have a constitution and they can't just break the rules. That is what we were thinking. We were not... Obviously, we were conscious of the political background. We were conscious of the huge public interest in it. But what we were trying to do was to work out what the law was, what the principles were, and how they applied to the case. Um, 
what, what happened was we heard all the arguments from the parties over the first two days of the three-day hearing. And I said to everybody, go away and on preferably one side of A4, put down your answer to the following questions. Is it justiciable? If it's justiciable, what are the applicable principles? Thirdly, how do they apply to the facts as we have them? And fourthly, what's the remedy? What's the outcome? And I asked them all to do that. And that's why it became totally apparent on the third day of the hearing the way that we were all thinking. Um, so that's what we were thinking about all the time. You know, we had to put the political context... Well, it was relevant, obviously, insofar as it was relevant to the decision-making of the government, but it was not relevant to what we were doing. And we, we were pretty firm about that. Um, so there we go. You can believe me or not believe me, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and on um, off the back of that question, will there, looking ahead, will there always be a Supreme Court or will someone at some point attempt to revoke it? Uh, there was a talk. I mean, people got very aerated mm. uh, about all of this. And there was talk about replacing the Supreme Court with ad hoc specialist courts to hear appeals in particular cases, which, of course, is yeah, high, wrong in principle, obviously, because you, you know, you're picking your panels, aren't you? And what you're not doing is have the collective wisdom of a, of a variegated court, which gives you so much better decision-making than all the people with the same background and thinking the same. Uh, and it would completely have, have um, gone against everything everywhere else in the common law world. So uh, I jolly well hope that idea is not being mm. thought of. I believe the Supreme Court will continue. Mm. There um, was somebody over there. Yes. Lady Hale, um, having been the first woman to be in the highest court of the land, the House of Lords and the Supreme Court, um, but only one of four that of women we've had in the Supreme Court, and we're now in 2022, we're back to a position of a Supreme Court that is all white and male, save for Lady Rose. Mm. <laughs> what is to be done, if anything, to promote greater diversity in the highest court of the land? Mm. Well, thank you for the question. It's very disappointing that having got ourselves up to a quarter women in the Supreme Court just before I retired, we're now back to only one. Um, I think the best I can say is that the lack of diversity in the judiciary generally has been recognised as a problem in this century. On the whole, it wasn't in the 20th century, but it is recognised as a problem now, and considerable attempts have been made to address it at the entry level to the judiciary. So we now have a much higher proportion of women. We haven't done so well on ethnic minorities, except in the tribunal system. We're quite well off for ethnic minorities in the tribunal system, but not so much in the court system. Uh, but the number of, the proportion of women has gone up to, uh, at certain levels, it's about 40%. Uh, but at the higher levels, it's still between 25 and 30%, which is not enough, given the many, many very talented women who go into the law. 
huge numbers. So we have to try and address that. We have to try and find talent wherever it is, recognize it, bring it on, and uh, then persuade women to want to do the, the, the higher jobs. And not everybody does. It's not, it doesn't suit everybody. So we've got to do all of those things. They are being done, but it does, I'm not saying it takes time, it does take time. Um, and my only optimism about it is that it is now recognised as a problem and efforts are being made to do something about it. One of the things I tried to do about it was to group the vacancies in the Supreme Court so that we were appointing three justices at a time rather than one at a time. And you can imagine that that is beneficial for diversity because you can see that you've got several different sorts of person. It's not one against one. Um, and we did do some good by, by doing it in that way, but that hasn't happened more recently. I still live in hope. Uh, yes, I'm, to save time, I'll just repeat the question or so people can hear it. Say yes. Uh, sorry, um, uh, as, a, as a lawyer, one of my greatest experiences has been to the top court on two occasions. And the thing that's so unusual about it is that you don't just have a bench, obviously, of one judge, yeah. but you quite often have five judges, and not just any judges, of course, the most intelligent judges in the country. And I just <laughs> not necessarily. Could... <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered if you could give any indication as to how on earth you go about as a group of, say, five judges making a decision and whether you can ever tell us whether you've had any real bust-ups when there's been so many differences <laughs> of opinion I'll just, I'll just repeat that because we didn't have the, um, for people at the back. And the gel gentleman who freely admits to being a lawyer um, <laughs> is um, uh, asked um, Lady Hale to reflect on having a number of brains uh, together making a decision and whether there have been any big bust-ups. And it's not only that, because by definition the case is a difficult one. Because mm. we only take difficult cases. So there is room for argument. Uh, the simple answer to your question, which you probably already know, is that immediately after the hearing, having read all the papers, heard all the arguments, we go and have a meeting, and we go round the table, one after the other, beginning with the most junior justice, each of us saying what we think the outcome is and brief reasons. Well, they're not always too brief, but... Uh, 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 and that usually tells us what often it's unanimous, I mean, 80% unanimous, um, uh, but it tells us what the outcome is likely to be. Um, and as a result of that, it's up to the presider to finger somebody to write the lead judgment, the donkey work judgment, <laughs> the one that sets it all out you know, and, and represents the view that most people are likely to agree with. Other people are entitled, of course, to write supporting judgments or to write dissenting judgments. Uh, and sometimes a dissenter will try and get their dissent in first to get people to change their minds. Which but, is a US Supreme Court. Yeah, thing, it's not it? a good, it's, yeah. that's not good form, yeah. but sometimes yeah. people did it and sometimes it worked. Um, <laughs> we very rarely had bust ups. Now we're all very civilized, you know, <laughs> and we're all trying to do the job that we've sworn to do. You know, it's just we have differences of opinion. Um, I did once, you probably know this, I did once cause my colleagues to be cross with me. Uh, can I tell this story, do you think? Um, yeah. It was, it was a, well, wait and see. Okay. Um, 
It was a case about a, an elderly disabled former ballerina who was not incontinent, but she needed help to get out of bed to go to the loo in the night. And the local authority decided that they would withdraw her help to do that and supply her with incontinence pads. Now, she regarded that as a gross insult to her dignity, and so she challenged it. Uh, and uh, it came to the Supreme Court on a really rather narrow issue, which I won't bore you with. But the four men um, thought this was all all right. That um, it was all right to give her incontinence? Yes, time. yes, yeah. they did. Uh, and I said, no, it wasn't. Um, and I pointed out that the logic of their view was that it would have been okay to give her incontinence pads not only at night but throughout the day, so no help to go to the loo, uh, and indeed it would be just as uh, okay if her problem had not been uh, urine but it had been faeces, and if she had needed to defecate in the night. They were horrified, because I used these words, you know. <laughs> A plain, a plain speaking Yorkshire. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, women are much mm. more comfortable talking mm. about bodily mm. functions than <laughs> men tend to be. Uh, and I was trying to confront them with, I mean, this is a bit of me trying to get them to change their minds, because I was trying to confront them with the logic of what they were, what they were saying. Anyway, that was, that was sad, because they were absolutely outraged that I had said this. You know, they deplored the language that I had used. And I'd only told it like it was. Yeah. Um, that's the closest I ever got to falling <laughs> out with my colleagues. And the very next case that I sat on with the chap who was the senior in that course, we wrote a joint judgment together. Mm. So that's how things were. Oh, in that case, of course, they won. <laughs> I lost. Um, and actually, it went to uh, the European Court of Human Rights. And Strasbourg said, yes, it was an affront to her Article 8 dignity rights, but we're not going to interfere with allocation of public resources questions. So she lost there as well. But if you read the children's book that has been written about me, it's one of the cases that the children are told about, and the children are all outraged. <laughs> so there you go. Thank you very much. Um, if you, I'm sorry, if you want to ask a question, you'll have to buy a book. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, um, what, very last brief question. Um, often uh, retired distinguished justices, they become a report or a tribunal. You, the Janet Smith report and so on. And mm. um, you, you, you presumably you get offered those. I've got offered the odd inquiry mm. to do. Um, and at the moment, I haven't wanted to do that because I don't actually want to tie myself down to months. Well, they can be years, can't they? They can be years. I mean... Heather Hallett will no doubt do an extremely good job on the COVID yeah, inquiry because yeah. she, she's yeah. very good. Um, but it will take mm. her a very long time. Uh, you know, uh, and these things do tend to, to mm. take a long time. So I've, and I don't want to um, do arbitration or, or whatever because that's just more judging. I've done judging. I <laughs> <laughs> want to do other things. Yeah. Well, um, it was a great privilege to talk to Lady Hale about um, Spider-Woman and... Uh, her life in the law and in North uh, Yorkshire. Um, she will now be signing, we'll go out, and then she will sign copies um, of her book in the bookshop. Thank you very much to all of you, and particularly to Lady Hale.
Thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.